So here's the thing that I think that pandemic does. Uh, is it speeds up processes that are normally so slow that we don't notice them. So like if you've ever seen a time lapse of a seed growing into a plant, you know how uh, processes that are very slow seem to not exist at all. They're very easy to forget, even if you know in the back of their mind, in your mind that they're happening. So uh, Tim Harford, who does this great uh, statistics and statistical literacy show for the BBC called More or Less, just had a, a public health expert on who said that the projected death toll from coronavirus in the UK is basically a year's projected growth death toll in a in a in a week right and that this is basically what's happening across the board we're getting a a year's layoffs in a week we're getting a year's bad financial news in a week we're getting years tragedy in a week and what that does in addition to being sort of hard to cope with because it comes faster than we can deal with and that's why we all want to flatten the curve and you know have a year's worth of respirator demand that has been crammed in a week spread out over over a couple of months Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Here, the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. Over a year ago, we had Cory Doctor on the program, famed sci-fi author, privacy advocate, co-editor of the popular Boing Boing blog. He contributes to numerous top publications, is a special consultant to the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and is somebody who is very, very involved with both the open source movement and the issues surrounding privacy and surveillance today. In today's episode, time dated so you guys know, April 7th, 2020, right in the middle of the COVID crisis. We discuss possible geopolitical consequences of this whole COVID-19 epidemic and where we may be headed, new ways to consider economics and healthcare and how this may just change the paradigm entirely, why Corey isn't all that worried about a post-corona Patriot Act and the loss of privacy, how to avoid the self-destructive nature of late-stage capitalism as we move forward, how we could fund a Green New Deal and why it may be necessary now, and possible implications of the coronavirus on U.S. politics and what it means for the country going forward. This one is super prescient. Corey has a ton of very interesting concepts that I haven't heard talked about all that frequently, and I think you guys are really going to enjoy this, especially if you're still stuck in your homes. Let's hope we're not and we're beyond the need for social distancing, but if you are, I give you Corey Doctorow. And by the way, guys, if we're still in the middle of the plague, please consider checking out my books. I write dystopian fiction. I've got a post-plague one, Synetic Wolf, that you can check out, and another one coming out, Death Donor. Imagine scientists find a cure for aging. The catch? It takes a life to give one. What would you sell your life for? MattWardWrites.com. And now, without further ado, I give you Corey Doctorow. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Corey, I want to I want to get people a little bit of context on where we are right now. So, God, actually, what's today's date? That's a good call question. April seventh. Yeah. Today's today's April seventh. What is happening in Corey Doctorow's world today? Because I know you said you're incredibly busy. Yeah. Well, so I'm working on a um, an essay for the Electronic Frontier Foundation about the ways in which technological market concentration, the rise of big tech distorts our discourse. And to try and uh, contrast the idea of of big tech uh, being a kind of form of like uh, technological mesmerism 
that bypasses your critical faculties and makes people believe that like up is down and and left is right. And instead, you know, focus on the stuff that's a lot less speculative. Like if there's only one place where everyone goes for answers, then what that place says the answer is becomes really consequential. And if they're wrong or if they're tricked into giving wrong answers, then it can really distort our discourse. And we tend to uh, under-focus and under-theorize on those things that are just kind of, you can think of them as expressions of just like monopoly capitalism, and over-focus on this highly speculative, really, um, really, really uh, uh, hard to prove and, and kind of, I don't know if I want to say outlandish, but at least like uh, extraordinary claim that uh, using machine learning and big data, you can make people believe things that aren't true even if they know better. And so, yeah, I'm working on that. I'm working on another essay for the launch of the Third Little Brother book about the um, relationship that cyberpunk plays to the current science fiction writing world. Uh, All these people like me who grew up reading cyberpunk writers who didn't know much about computers, but were very evocative in in what uh, William Gibson calls the poetics of technology, who then grew up to both work in computers and write science fiction, and what this kind of post-cyberpunk says about, you know, the relationship between science fiction and technological development. And then I'm working on a third Little Brother book, uh, or rather, I've just finished the third Little Brother book. I'm working on a new novel to go after that about the Green New Deal, uh, set after a successful Green New Deal amidst pandemics. This is a thing I was already working on when the pandemic struck, and um, about truth and reconciliation with people who are really angry that the Green New Deal has arrived and that the world is getting better. And as far as they're concerned, the world is getting much, much worse. And it's set here in Burbank, California, where I live. I feel you on the pandemic thing. I released a post-epidemic book uh, a couple days after all this started. Yeah. The timing the timing is interesting, to say the least. Yeah, I just, it is, uh, um, I just read uh, my friend uh, Lauren Bukes' next novel, which is out in July, which obviously was written last year, called Afterland, which is about uh, it's set. It's set in a world in which um, almost every man has died in a pandemic, uh, a viral form of prostate cancer. So almost everyone who has a prostate is now dead, and uh, less than one percent of men survive. And so it's it's this kind of post-apocalyptic novel about a woman and her son, who is one of the few survivors, who are South African like Lauren, but who happened to be trapped in the U.S. when the plague struck, and who are now trying to get back to Johannesburg. It's quite a quite a great book, actually. I just wrote a blurb for it in a review. It's out in July. Speaking of that exact concept, I kind of feel trapped in the U.S. My wife is Swiss, and we were planning on moving back there. Mm-hmm. The U.S. just doesn't have the the healthcare system and infrastructure to support what's happening. Well, what do you, what do you think about the contrast between what's happening in Europe and and you the U.S.? Yeah, you know, I I mean, it really depends. You're this is so. Here's the thing that I think that pandemic does. Uh, is it speeds up processes that are normally so slow that we don't notice them. So like if you've ever seen a time lapse of a seed growing into a plant, you know how uh, processes that are very slow seem to not exist at all. They're very easy to forget, even if you know in the back of their mind, in your mind that they're happening. So uh, Tim Harford, who does this great uh, statistics and statistical literacy show for the BBC called More or Less, just had a, a public health expert on who said that the projected death toll from coronavirus in the UK is basically a year's projected growth death toll in a in a in a week right and that this is basically what's happening across the board we're getting a a year's layoffs in a week we're getting a year's bad financial news in a week we're getting years tragedy in a week and what that does in addition to being sort of hard to cope with because it comes faster than we can deal with and that's why we all want to flatten the curve and you know have a year's worth of respirator demand that has been crammed in a week spread out over over a couple of months 
The other thing that it does is it highlights that stuff that has become background noise. It makes it so shrill that uh, it it ceases to be background noise. If you've if you've ever uh, you know noticed that a refrigerator compressor turned off uh, or was going rather only because it turned off, then you know how these these background noises can disappear into the background. But there's another way that they can become very audible, which is if they shift up in pitch. Uh, you know, if things get much, if things that are quiet get much much louder, they're harder to ignore. And that, I think, is what's going on right now. So all of the dis- differences between European countries are becoming a lot more salient, you know, obviously, like the way that public administration follows in, in Italy and Spain, and the collapse of trust in institutions following the financial crisis there uh, has exacerbated the, the way that the epidemic has played out there as well. In the UK, you know, the, the decade of public health cuts which work fine so long as no one gets sick, but fail very badly if lots of people get sick at once, are playing us so badly that even as we record this, the prime minister, who cheered every one of those cuts on, is now, uh, you know, fighting for his life in an ICU. So, you know, when we say life comes at you quick, we often mean it in a kind of uh, jaunty, rhetorical way. But actually, when slow things come at you quick, they become a lot more obvious sometimes. It becomes a lot easier to figure out what's going on. And so the problems of the gig economy, the problems of the um, restriction of healthcare within the US and so on, they're also all more salient too. Obviously, some European countries are, are bearing up much better and others are, are bearing up much worse. And, you know, it says a lot about the relationship between institutions and individuals and their social cohesion, what's going on in each of them. What would be a big prediction that you would make based off of what's happening and where you see the world headed that not a lot of people are making? I have to say that I am, you know, massively uninterested in predictions and way more interested in uh, struggles. (laughs) Uh, because, or, you know, possibilities or scenarios, right? Um, the reason I'm like super, uh, skeptical about, about predictions is because there's something really fatalistic about the idea that the future is predictable. It kind of implies that the future is inevitable, right? Um, my, my friend Ada Palmer is a brilliant science fiction writer. She's also a tenured history professor, Renaissance historian at the University of Chicago, where her area of specialty is heterodox information during the Inquisitions in Florence. So, witchcraft, homosexuality, heterodoxy, uh, blasphemy, and, and, and so on. And every year she has her undergraduates reenact the election of the Medici's Pope. And so she, um, it's like a four week long live action role playing game. She has a Google alert for uh, theater troops that are getting rid of their costumes. So she has like Renaissance costuming for all of her students. And over the course of four weeks, you know, by text message and, you know, in secret meetings, they, they power broker which person is going to be the Pope. And every year, two of the final candidates are always the same. And every year, two of the final candidates are always different. And that's because while there are great historic forces that weigh heavily on which future we arrive at, there is also room for human agency, right? That the two favorites were always going to be the favorites, but the two dark horses, they're completely unpredictable. And they're the result of the actions that the students take to shift the great forces of history, right? So the great forces of history are the bounding conditions on what's possible, but they are not determinative of what's possible. So what I think we're about to head into is a moment in which the possibility space gets much wider, right? One thing that I think we can be pretty sure of is it's not going to be the same, right? Um, You know, for example, the idea that uh, deficits are intrinsically inflationary, or even that deficits are things that sovereign currency owners have to pay back, right? Our sovereign currency issuers have to pay back. 
I mean, you know, it's that this idea that that governments only spend their tax revenues as opposed to spending money into existence and taxing it out at the end of the at the end of the the cycle, which is, you know, the obviously true thing, right? Like governments can't tax us until they've spent the money for us to have. All the money starts with the government. So they have to they have to spend in a deficit in order to put money into the economy that we can then use. And when they tax money, they don't pile it all up again so they can spend it again in the next budget. They just annihilate it, right? The same way that like the iTunes store doesn't have to wait until you've redeemed a gift card before it can issue a new gift card. It's just entries in a spreadsheet. And when you redeem a gift card, it's annihilated. It's not banked and reissued. And so, um, you know, that that idea that like we have to balance our budget or, or that or that national debts are things that we owe to the Chinese or or to someone else, that idea is clearly going out the window. You have that Chancellor of the Exchequer in the UK who is, you know, as rabid a uh, uh, austerity hawk historically as you can imagine, now calling for massive uh, um, massive uh, public spending into the economy. In the US, you have the Republican Party, the party of, you know, better better to better to die than to accumulate federal debt. Uh, literally, like people who had, you know, for years been saying we should cut healthcare spending, we should cut things like, um, you know, medical aid for people in prison, which is the same thing as saying we should let prisoners die. Uh, now saying there's, there's like just, you know, how many trillions do you want? We'll just make that many trillions appear. And then when we're done, we can make those trillions disappear again. You know, that the economy doesn't have any one spending, so we'll provide the liquidity into the economy. So what we do with that knowledge is something that is totally up for grabs, right? We might on the back of it say, oh, well, now I know how we pay for a Green New Deal. We mobilize human capital and capital resources within our economy by spending the money into the economy for the purpose. And then we keep it from being inflationary by taxing it back or rationing the things the Green New Deal needs, or creating like money sinks the way they did in World War II, where they went around and they told people to buy war bonds, not because the government needed the public's money to fight the war. The government just made more money when they needed to fight the war. They just didn't want people trying to buy the things that they were procuring to fight the war. So they didn't have to get into it like a, a bidding war over, you know, tank rubber. And so they just said, oh, yeah, go buy war bonds and sequester your money for 30 years so we don't have to bid against you, right? That's one thing we might do. We might, on the other hand, say, like we did in 2008, let's uh, do all this liquidity provision into the pockets of people who have the most money, right? Let's exacerbate inequality and give the richest people who have so distorted our public policy that we already did things like sell off California's ventilator reserves in, in 2008 to pay for the 2008 crisis and close hospitals and uh, stick doctors with massive amounts of student debt so that they are unable to have the liquid capital they need to like get a separate apartment so they can keep their family safe. All that stuff, uh, that, that stuff goes, might uh, go out the window. We might just say, let's, let's make the rich people even richer and let their preferences rather than evidence determine what our policy should be to an even greater extent, in which case we're going to be back here, you know, in a year or a month or, or, or a decade at the outside. How do we prevent that second scenario when typically the people that are making the rules are already the ones at the top of the game and they like to reinforce it? I think the one thing that might be different about what you're saying now is the, the movement on the Republican side. They're sure a heck of a lot older. They, um, they might be feeling it a little bit more in terms of having to make a change. Well, yeah, there's definitely like a couple of things going on. There's like a push and a pull. 
So, you know, the, the pull might be that the, you know, Trump administration's policies and, you know, Fox News's uh, um, imprecations to go out and, and violate uh, social distancing in order to own the libs, just like straight up murders a bunch of people who've historically supported those policies and alienates a much larger cohort of those people and then takes their children who, who you know, might otherwise have grown up to, to support the cause and, and so permanently traumatizes them that they become permanently alienated from the cause, the same way that my grandparents who, you know, fled the Holocaust never drove a Ford because Henry Ford had uh, translated the, the protocols of the elders of Zion. You know, people nurse those grudges for a long time. And so, you know, th- that, that's one force that, that might pull us in one direction. The other one, though, is this idea of like a scalloped growth curve. So most growth isn't linear. What, what most growth is, is um, caused by sort of punctuated events, right? So you have, uh, you know, if you're growing a business or say you're growing your audience for your podcast here, right? You will have a guest on who might say a thing that's really timely, like you just happen to have an interview in the can about, you know, I don't know, pandemics, the week the pandemic is announced and you air that and it's like, you're, you're first off the mark and your listenership goes up by 10x. Well, that sugar rush is not going to last, right? Your, your listenership will fall off dramatically after that 10x rise, but it might stick at 1.5x, right? All the people who download the, that episode might include half as many people who has been previously listening to you who are like, oh, this is just an episode I want to hear. This is a podcast I want to follow. And then it'll happen again and again and again. You get these scalloped growth uh, patterns. And you see that in the rise of the consciousness of uh, inequality and market concentration and its root causes in our society that, you know, the crash of 2000, you know, the battle of Seattle before it, the, the collapse of the economy after 2001, the 2008 crisis, uh, the 2011 liquidity crisis, you know, the, the Ferguson uprising. Uh, and so on. What you see are people who are at the vanguard of each one of those responses who made their entry in one of the previous events, right? Like the, the Occupy organizers who, or the Occupy, uh, you know, rank and file become the organizers around the uh, inequality movement after the 2011 debt crisis or the, the Sanders campaign in 2016 or the Warren campaign, right? The, that, um, you know, the, the cohort gets bigger and bigger and it might tip, right? Like we might get a, a sudden event where it catches so much momentum that things change. I mean, this, this might be that event. I mean, wow, right? I, you know, there's never been, it's like, imagine if you had a podcast episode that was so successful that every person on earth listened to it. And imagine as kind of a baseline that if every person on earth, if all 7 billion people on earth heard your podcast, 500 million of them would become lifelong listeners. You would reach all 500 million of your listeners after that one event, right? Like, yeah, you would never grow again, but holy moly, you'd have 500 million listeners for life, right? Well, we are about to have 500 or 7 billion people worldwide exposed to the crisis of late stage capitalism who are going to everyone who is susceptible to the critique of late stage capitalism is probably going to be exposed to it. And that might grow the opposition by so much, even as these other forces you're talking about, the, this weakening of support for the kind of gerontocratic oligarchy that is the Fox-Trump alliance weakens, that might really be game-changing. So you don't like to make predictions, but if you did have to make a bet, 
Would you say that the U.S. moves more towards the European direction of socialism after this or more towards uh, isolated capitalism? Well, speaking as someone who was a European citizen until about um, two months ago, uh, the European there is no European socialism. So uh, uh, let's, I, let's let's talk. To, let's talk German, German, Swiss, so, somewhere. OK, that's well, I mean, there, between Swiss is a little different because of federalism, the strong federalism that much stronger than German. But it's so, liberal democracy, social democracy, that Nordic thing. I actually think that the Nordic um, picture is probably going to shift far to the left because of where we're at now. I mean, remember that Sweden is like super unequal uh, and that it has a massive, you know, alienated white nationalist movement that Norway is only as wealthy as it is because of the petro wealth, uh, the North Sea oil. And, um, and, and, you know, it has this big environmental movement that is challenging whether or not the Norwegian wealth is legitimate. And, you know, Germany has been straining under these fracture lines as its uh, uh, pluralistic social safety net has been whittled away by neoliberalism and uh, offshoring of jobs and so on. So, you know, I think that they will shift to the left. And, you know, again, like not wanting to make the... the so the, the thing is, I don't want to make a bet. To the left the, or to the right? To the left. I think it will shift to the left. I think that, that the cause of the kind of... The neoliberal cause within Germany that has said that we, if we just let the finance industry dismantle more of our historic social safety net, the, the stuff that we built to show East Germany that they didn't need communism because there was such a thing as a, a kind capitalism, that, it, you know, that, that that movement, that tendency that has been in German politics since the Helmut Kohl era, that tendency will be fully discredited by this because, it, you know, to the extent that Germany is faring badly, it's faring badly because they listen to those people. And so, you know, th there will be a, a real moral force for the, the anti-oligarchic tendency that might swing right. I mean, there are right-wing anti-oligarchic movements. I think mostly they consist of uh, turkeys who've been convinced to vote for Christmas. You know, they're anti-oligarchic in the sense of like, we shouldn't have Davos bankers bossing us around. We should have our own bankers bossing us around. Let's, you know, G Germany for the German finance industry, not Germany for this, you know, corrupt uh, foreign finance industry. And those movements, I mean, they can they can be powerful, but but uh, they are also like pretty self limiting because eventually, like Christmas comes, right, and then the turkeys start to regret their vote. Uh, I don't want to make a bet about the U.S. because I think that, like, in the same way, like a bet about what our climate future is is somewhat fatalistic. It's the wrong paradigm to think about this in, right? Like, if you sit down, and you go, like, what are the odds that we will or won't shift our uh, consensus? in a way that allows us to address the climate crisis before the earth is rendered uninhabitable for the vast majority of humans, uh, that odds making is only useful in as much as it's a way of assessing a tactic to avert that, right? Like, so if you're, if you're like, it's only interesting when it's part of a scenario, like if we do X, does it improve the odds or not, right? The odds themselves are only interesting in a, in a, like in the abstract, in a totally like sociopathic way, like as they, as I, as I, you know, drink my own rubble and, and dig through can, you know, or drink my own urine and dig through rubble looking for canned goods, I will have the satisfaction of knowing that if that casino hadn't collapsed, my debt, my bet would have paid off, right? Like, I'm, I'm just not interested in that proposition. I, I do want to know which tactics will shift us towards a better future and away from a worse future. So in that respect, I'm interested in odds. But I'm not interested in odds in the sense of ever wanting to lay a bet. And so, you know, my odds are always dynamic. My odds are always 
what are the odds given this course of action or that? What are the odds given this movement or that, this tactic or that? Never this fatalistic idea that there are odds that exist in the abstract irrespective of our actions. I like it comparison based at decision making. Yeah, yeah. You know, in the same way, like, so, you know, there's been a lot of like uh, dumb, dumb critiques of um, of the early uh, science on coronavirus, right? Like the, the dumb, dumb version of, of why you should still go to your mega church and poison all your fellow congregationists is, ah, they change their answers every week. Those guys don't know anything. And the, what's really happening is they're saying like, okay, we've got this model and this model makes assumptions X, Y, and Z. X and Y are about uh, what we think the virus does and Z is about what we think humans will do. And every week we are going to learn more about what humans are willing to do and what the virus does. And we will revise our model, right? Rather than like, rather than, you know, nailing our colors to the mast on this. There's a, there's a great uh, heterodox economist. He's a, he's a professor in Texas, but he's got an alter ego he calls uh, the cowboy economist. And he puts on a 10-gallon hat and he draws and he talks econ- economics like in cowboy talk. And uh, one of the things that, that he's talked about a lot in the context of the, uh, the um, you know, massive willingness to spend and the, the lack of, um, uh, of, of uh, hyperinflation as a result and so on has been um, that markets are, 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 have historically been considered a tool and not, a, um, not the arbiter of moral worth or the only way of organizing a society. And if you think of markets as a tool, like an allocation tool, you know, yeah, there are times when you'd want to use one and times when you wouldn't. And he says now, like, there are lots of people who use tools every day and they use different tools, but they don't make moral judgments about those tools, right? Like if you brought in a carpenter and he said, like, there's one thing you got to know about me. I'm a screwdriver carpenter. I'm not a hammer carpenter. Anything that needs to get put, put together, I'm only going to use screws because those hammer people, they're immoral, right? That would be a bad carpenter. And if you have an economist who says, I'm a market economist, I don't do state planning. Well, that economist is taking a tool that we know works, like it worked to the extent that like it exterminated Nazism <laughs> in World War II. And they're saying, I just don't use that tool because it's a bad tool. It's the wrong tool. If markets can't solve, say, the climate crisis, then we just all have to, like, die. Then that's a bad economist. Really, we have to be able to have caveats. We have to have a diversity of tactics, right? We have to, we have to understand. How do we that, do that based off the, the GDP-based system that we have right now, which is so market-driven? Well, remember that the largest employer in America is the Pentagon, right? It's, it's, it's not Walmart. You know, America already has a giant state employment apparatus, right? And and remember also that many of the industries in the US receive titanic hidden subsidies. And I'm not talking about oil and its obvious subsidies like the willingness to spend trillions of dollars conquering other oil states. Uh, but I'm talking about like things like the telecoms industry, right? Like if you were Verizon and you were going into New York City and you said like, we don't want to deal with the government. We want to build the galt's gulch of, of uh, telecoms infrastructure. So we're going to do it on a market basis. We're going to knock on every door in New York and we're going to negotiate a market price to like drill a hole in the basement and run a wire to the roof. Um, you would run out of money long before you ran out of New York City, right? So the entire telecoms industry sits on trillions and trillions of dollars in subsidies. And so, you know, like, like there's that old uh, Winston Churchill punchline where he's like sitting next to some woman at dinner and he asks if she would, st- I forget how it goes, something like, you know, would you, st- would you, you married your husband because he had a million dollars, 
uh, would you sleep with me for a dollar? And she says, uh, what kind of woman do you think you are? And Churchill allegedly says, well, we've already established that. Now we're on, now we're wagering or we're dickering about the price. Some, some horrible misogynist thing that Winston Churchill is alleged to have said. But, you know, like we've already established what kind of economy we have. We have a socialist economy. It's just a highly limited form of socialism that, you know, only applies to, uh, cost plus no bid contracts for the military and uh, highly concentrated infrastructure-intensive industries like telecoms and industries like pharma that get to scoop up publicly funded research, uh, develop uh, drugs with it, basically own their regulators so they never have to rigorously test it, and uh, then get to patent it and command the apparatus of the state to prevent anyone else from using the research that they ripped off fair and square from the public purse, right? Like, we already have that. Right. All we're talking about is is changing the allocation. And so that's what I mean about this, um, you know, this this scalloped growth curve. You know, if you look at like the the way that Hoover got ousted and the New Deal came into being, you know, like like the, the Great Depression didn't come out of nowhere. Right. There had been this series of like catastrophic economic events, including, you know, the return of the, the soldiery from World War One at a time when there were no military pensions to speak of. And they were they were told that they had to return to a job market that had been destroyed by profit taking from the uh, from the uh, war industries, who were then given massive payouts for their contribution to the war, and that they just had to starve, right? Like that they just had to, to ride the rails, right? Like do do whatever they needed to do to survive, because there was no place for them in America. And eventually, you know, Hoover said, and, and Hoover was like completely beholden to his, um, his, uh, finance secretary who was, um, Mellon, Andrew Mellon, you know, of, of Carnegie Mellon fame, who owned all of the aluminum in the world through Alcoa and who was doing things like getting the State Department to withhold trade deals from like Colombia unless they agreed to sign over the mining franchise for all Colombian aluminum to Alcoa to prevent Alcoa from having to compete with Colombian aluminum, right? So like he just wanted to make sure that rich people stayed rich and he thought you know if we pay these these soldiers who come back their what they're due well then rich people have less money and so he was willing to like just sort of maintain the status quo and people were willing to let him get away with it you know there was this sense because there had been such a a long run of plutocracy in America that that was the way it had to be but the contradictions that manifested as a result of the unwillingness to address this policy debt, right? The interest that mounted up on the policy debt of doing not what was right, but what was convenient for rich people eventually triggered a bankruptcy, the crash of 29. And then following that, the unwillingness to uh, uh, give the people who were hurt by it anything but austerity. And the veterans marched on Washington, D.C. They called themselves the Bonus Army. And the and thousands and thousands of veterans converged on Washington, D.C., and set up a shanty town they called Hooverville. And they demanded the pension that was their due. And they never got it. Hoover unleashed a paramilitarized DC police force on them and beat them and murdered them and chased them out of DC. And in his victory, he lost because the spectacle of that was so grotesque that everyone in America who'd said, well, I guess this is the way that it's got to be, said, I don't really care what happens next so long as it's not this. And that's where you get FDR in the New Deal, right? And and the New Deal wasn't just FDR getting elected. It was FDR getting elected and having this giant popular movement behind him who every time someone tried to get in the way of FDR's agenda, whether that was the Supreme Court or um, Congress or the Senate or uh, the various um, pieces of the civil service, 
um, they would they would hold those people's feet to the fire, you know, and and so much so, you know, the Supreme Court became so discredited that when FDR threatened to pack the court and like just start appointing more judges to get his agenda through, the Supreme Court just changed its mind because they knew that the people would rather see a packed court and the damage that that would do to that institution, the politicization of that institution, than to go on um, seeing their own fortunes set aside in in the service of enriching the super rich. So we're at a crisis like that right now. We are facing an unemployment level that we haven't seen since the Great Depression. Trauma that will beggar our imagination, right? The, the, the kind of trauma that um, industrial workers went through, say, uh, 30 years ago when, when we dismantled all American industry and offshored it, that's going to come to all of us. And it's going to come to all of us at once. And we will be a force to be reckoned with in a way that those people took a couple of decades to be reckoned with uh, when they finally started to vote for, you know, grifters in spray tan who promised that he would make the rest of us suffer the way that they had suffered. There's a bit of a rhyming irony with Mellon, um, with uh, Mellon and FDR and Trump and Bernie, although Bernie doesn't seem like he's going to be getting the, the uh, presidential nominee on the Democratic side. It seems unlikely. I mean, I'm a supporter of his, but I agree. It seems unlikely. It, it also, uh, you know, is hard to like this is this is just such a weird circumstance, right? Like Black it Swan. looks like Dominic Rabb is about to become effectively prime minister of the United Kingdom because the actual prime minister was uh, is about to get stuck on a ventilator and might drop dead any minute, right? Like we we really don't know. Like we don't know how many Supreme Court just like this is this is like dark. We don't know how many Supreme Court justices the next uh, president is going to appoint. We don't know, like all three of the possible presidents that we have are in high risk categories for uh, COVID and all three of them, their job is shaking people's hands, right? Like all three of them could be dead this time next year. Like we don't know. Netflix, if you guys are looking for content, you got to put out a speculative thriller right now before we get there. There's a, it is, it is absolutely crazy what's going down. I want to be like super clear, you know, I am not, I am not, uh, uh, hoping for the death of of even Boris Johnson, who's a terrible, awful person, and and I uh, I just think that like again, if we're gonna like think about scenarios and attribute odds to them, and and think about what we can do to avert those scenarios and what we do if those scenarios came to pass, that these are scenarios that like are are very much in play right now in a way that they weren't before. I mean, you know, four months ago, people were like, we can't elect Bernie Sanders. He's so old that he's got a 5% chance of having another heart attack in office. Well, like, (laughs) you know, everybody who's a forerunner and half the Senate and most of the Supreme Court have a much higher chance than that as like a baseline of being uh, seriously incapacitated or even killed. Or ruined long term. Hmm? Or ruined long term stuff of potential consequences. Yeah, Yeah. it it could very much accelerate. they they do they do have that saying in politics and in most things of uh, change happens when the old guard die. Uh, yeah, that well they say um, they say uh, science progresses one funeral at a time. Exactly, science politics. There's there's a lot of ways that that applies. Let's take this out of the let's take this out of the morbid and into the the cyberpunk awful. So a big part of your focus is privacy, surveillance, and individual rights and. How do we avoid having another Patriot Act happen here? Yeah, that's a big one. And again, like the, the I, you know, viral, viral uh, metaphors are in somewhat bad taste at the moment. But like, I think that to a certain extent, we have been vaccinated against another Patriot Act by the last one, right? That, that 
when the last Patriot Act came about, the comparisons were to things that were much more distant than the Patriot Act is to today, right? Like the um, executive order that caused the internship of Japanese Americans, say. And you know, while those while those did have a, a salience, it was it was um, it wasn't visceral for most people. I think for Japanese Americans, it was, but not for not for the majority of Americans. And that I think is not the case with Patriot. I mean, obviously, there's there's a generation who don't remember the pre-Patriot Act America. But you know, there have been fairly recent Patriot scandals. You know, the the Snowden scandal is a Patriot Act scandal. Uh, that um, it is, but so many people just didn't seem. They don't seem to care. It's like they noticed oh, no, they and just cared. kept they walking. They just didn't sustain it. There was massive interest in Snowden. It just didn't last, right? And it didn't last because because of scallop growth, because the number of people for whom it was salient enough to make it a daily part of their of their lives and their discourse was too small, right? You know, back to contagion. You know, the the number of people who were susceptible enough to uh, to uh, uh, acquire an acute case of Snowdenitis was small. So most people got a mild form of the infection and then recovered, right? The status quo reasserted itself. But in the years since, we've made ourselves weaker uh, when it comes to to our susceptibility to ignoring surveillance. You know, this is where the metaphor starts to fall apart. But but you know, our our uh, our our, sur- our our indifference to surveillance has been eroded in the years since. In the same way that our indifference to climate change has been eroded, not because people have gotten better at explaining surveillance or climate change, but because the problems of surveillance and climate change have become more obvious because people keep ending up in horrible, horrible scandals and in horrible, horrible life circumstances because of mistakes that we've made in those domains. So like, you know, an example would be uh, back in uh, like about four years ago, I went and did a Rand Corporation multi-stakeholder war game about an information war in America. And they had like these spooks and they had, um, you know, civil libertarians and they had lawyers and they had cops and they had, uh, you know, politicians, just all kind, you know, like a big wide slice of, of participants. And we were put in these little groups and we were given scenarios, little, little like Ada's students, you know, having to game out the election of the Pope. And, you know, they would come in and they would say like, the president needs an answer now. They're rioting in Baltimore. What do we do? And, you know, everything that came out of our little group that was really like surveillancey, it was immediately nixed by the three-letter agency types, right? The, the cops and the spooks. And I couldn't figure it out. I was like, who are you and what have you done with America's surveillance apparatus? And the answer turned out to be that whenever they were talking about doing this, they would, uh, one of them would whisper to the other, oh, we can't do that. It would be too much like OPM. And OPM stands for the Office of Personnel Management. And the Office of Personnel Management is the government agency that you have to apply to if you want to get security clearance. And to get security clearance, you have to tell OPM everything that might be ever used to blackmail you, all your potential compromise. So you have to like, you know, my brother's addicted to heroin. My mother attempted suicide when I was in high school. Uh, you know, I, I uh, secretly buy and I see rent boys, whatever, right? You have to tell them all that stuff. And OPM leaked all of that data to the Chinese military, <laughs> along with the fingerprints of everyone who ever applied for security clearance. 20 million Americans data was leaked to the Chinese military in a spectacular hack that turned out to have been brought about in part because the OPM wasn't very good at security and in part because what they were defending was so valuable that it was absolutely worth the Chinese military to spend a lot of money to attack that database. And all of these people were now gun-shy about surveillance because they had lived through the experience, right? In the same way that people who survive a drunk driving wreck 
will never drink uh, drink and drive again, even if they weren't behind the wheel, right? Um, people who have survived this kind of privacy catastrophe become privacy fundamentalists. And so, you know, we are like at a moment in which the number of people who have experienced the failures of privacy protection, of, of you know, treating privacy as a good to be bought and sold and not as a fundamental right, of protecting privacy weekly, of coercing people into giving up their privacy. We're at a moment in which that number is bigger than it's ever been and which it's only ever going to go up. I call this peak indifference, right? Like we could never have another conversation in which someone tried to get someone else to care about privacy. And in five years, more people would care about privacy than they do today, not because of the persuasive power of people like me, but because of the traumatic experience of having had your life destroyed by a privacy breach. And there is a danger with peak indifference, which is that denialism can slide into nihilism. You know, if you spend years and years and years insisting that there's nothing wrong with rhino populations, and then you finally wake up one day and there's only one rhino left, there's a powerful, powerful temptation to shrug your shoulders and find out what he tastes like. Because after all, it's too late, right? And this is the problem with climate. This is the problem with privacy. This is the problem with any of these problems that have a long fuse. So it's hard to figure out what the causal relationships are where, you know, you take some action and then the bad thing happens 10 years later and it's hard to know whether that action caused it. And if so, what you what different action you could have taken to get a different outcome. And so that that problem, you know, we see it in in every domain, right? This nihil denial to nihilism in every domain where there's there's a long gap between cause and effect. But eventually people did stop smoking, even though the cause and effect between cigarettes and cancer was hard to establish and had been deliberately obscured by profiteers. And now people are coming around on climate, even though the cause and effect is hard to understand. And the science has been distorted by profiteers. And in the same way, privacy is starting to shift. And I see it in lots of quantifiable and qualitative ways. Quantifiably, in the rise and rise of ad blocking. Ad blocking, Doc Searles calls it the largest uh, consumer boycott in history. You know, one in four web users now ad blocks. And I see it in things like the scandal over Zoom privacy settings, which just suddenly freaked everybody out. Hey, you know, they may not stick to our fingers. We'll have scalloped growth, right? But but over and over again, we are seeing that these causes are self-fueling. And so now our job is not necessarily to convince people that we don't need another Patriot Act, but to convince people that it's not inevitable that we'll get another Patriot Act, that a different future is possible. Because it feels so much like a slippery slope sometimes that it's almost not, it doesn't feel like it's worth it to try to do it. Yeah, that, that Leonard Cohen lyric, you know, everybody knows that the that the uh, dice are loaded, you know, everybody rolls with their fingers crossed, right? Like there's, you know, if you think that that the future is uh, inevitable, then you don't try and change it. That's why I don't bet on the future. That's why I, that's why I focus on talking about which future we could have and what we need to do to get there, as opposed to making bets on the future. Because the, the, the game is rigged. The one thing that worries about me is whenever things like this are put forward, they're put forward in terms of like a SESTA, let's protect kids from sex trafficking. They're uh -huh. put forward in terms of let's prevent COVID-19 from spreading faster. I know a lot of countries have already implemented data-based tracking apps so they can essentially keep track of everyone and everyone who's bounced off of everyone and all of the all of the connections. There's definitely some push to do that in the US and other places. There's also just instances of companies like Uber and otherwise just sharing information over to the government. It's yeah. it, it's it's something where I don't know if we've actually reached peak indifference. I, I would I would slightly push back on that. But I definitely feel there's a tide moving in the wrong direction for where we want to be privacy wise. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, I would say that's true. I mean, I do think that we've hit peak indifference only because we've had lots and lots of, of new crises, but maybe. I mean, you know, we're, we're certainly headed there if we're not there yet. You know, historically, privacy advocates have talked about the four horsemen of the information apocalypse, who are the, you know, all-purpose excuses for every terrible technology idea that someone has. And they're the mafia or drug dealers, uh, child pornographers, uh, terrorists, and and um, uh, what's the fourth one? Hang on, I gotta I gotta Google this one sec. Uh, oh uh, oh, that's it. Terrorists, drug dealers, kidnappers, and child pornographers. Right? That's the that's the four horsemen of the information apocalypse. And you know, it's not it's not surprising that Sesto was was how we weakened the safe harbor because they're you know that's that's uh, a combination of child pornographers and and uh, and kidnappers. Right? It was it was about sex trafficking. Uh, nominally, although it has done nothing to stop sex trafficking and has exposed sex workers to high, uh, higher than ever amounts of risk, risk not seen since uh, the, the internet came along. Um, but, uh, you know, I think we are getting a fifth horseman here, which is public health. I think contact tracing is going to be the next one. And, um, you know, first of all, there are some pretty good privacy respecting contact tracing uh, protocols. Um, and then, you know, I think the other part of the, the counter argument is that um, coercive contact tracing uh, actually reduces the quality of your data because it incentivizes people who have a reason uh, not to want to be contact traced. Like, for example, they're uh, an undocumented worker or they are, are fleeing a, an abusive spouse or what have you. It, it gives them an incentive to create a, 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 a system for unofficially opting out. And that will weaken the whole system that what you really want, it's much better to have 90% of people opt into contact tracing after they're diagnosed and allow their device to dump the list of unique identifiers it's collected from other people who have opted in, uh, and then allow the system to alert people to say, if you have this unique identifier, it was seen by a device that has been carried by someone who has been tested positive, you should go to a doctor as opposed to something like uh, a system that it, that has, you know, 90% adoption, but the 10% of people who haven't adopted it are doing everything they can to subvert it, right? You just want people to opt out because you don't need perfect tracing to to do herd immunity. You just need you just need a reliable system and you don't want you don't want to incentivize people to make the system unreliable. Yeah, I remember there was some testing app or something in China that I was reading about and students wanted to get rid of the app so they all gave it a super low score on the iTunes That's right. store. Yeah, not a not a covid testing app, we should say. Not a, a covid a, testing a, app, a something a proctoring else. app for for distance education. Yeah. But yeah, that that ability of people to push outside. I for instance, I went to the grocery store yesterday and I was amazed. 10 to 20% of people had masks on and that was it. There was I mean hard this to get is, masks right now though. Like we But even masks, even even know. homemade masks. I mean yeah. they've been everywhere in terms of the newspaper all over the place in terms of you should be doing this, you should be doing this. The Czech Republic did that mm-hmm. really early on. A lot of countries did and they've seen really good results with it. And just either ignorance or arrogance has prevented us or prevented a large percentage of the population from getting on board. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. Uh, I I also wonder, though, like, what was the percentage last week? Oh, it's definitely better than it was. I mean, this is Georgia after all. But and if there's one thing we're learning from epidemics, it's what a doubling curve looks like, right? Like, if it went from 10% to 20% in two days, 
then maybe it'll be 40% in two days, and then maybe it'll be 100% in four days. It would probably help if our president would acknowledge this as a problem. Yeah, it sure would. Yeah, I mean, there are lots of factors that stop people from getting it. I mean, we only, you know, sort of started to reconsider the WHO advice, because it's not just the president, right? The WHO had, had different advice on this as well. We started to reconsider it last week, and we couldn't get masks. You know, uh, we've got some on order. Um, I've actually uh, been, um, we have a beloved dry cleaner who's, you know, hanging in there because they're a, an essential industry and uh, they've got no business. You know, the racks are just empty. And and I go in and he's a tailor and I say like, you know, you should sew some masks. So he sewed me some masks. We're going to pick them up today. And, uh, but, but, you know, like it's, it's hard to find them, right? So maybe... Once people have gotten their heads around the idea of, you know, homemade masks or, or just a scarf around their face is having some efficacy, once that idea has promulgated more widely, once masks themselves are easier to lay hands on, once there's more social disapprobation for people who don't wear masks, I mean, all of those factors might converge to uh, radically increase mask wearing very quickly. It's hard to say. And for people that are skeptical, even just wearing the masks makes you so much less likely to touch your face. You don't realize it until you do yeah, it. And suddenly you're, you're completely paranoid. And that's a great way to kill an epidemic right there is the paranoia itself. Very true. Although, as someone said on Twitter, it is a little weird to uh, go into a store wearing a mask and still be expected to pay. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. Corey, I know you're a super busy guy. Is there anything else we haven't touched on yet that you would like to touch on before we tell oh, people where to find you? I could mention the books I've got coming out. This being a weird time to have some books coming out. I mean, uh, it's, it's privacy stuff, so it all kind of fits in there. Sure. I've got, I've got th well, not all of them are privacy books. I've got three books out in 2020. So the, the first is a reissue of Little Brother and Homeland uh, coming out on July the 7th with a new introduction by Edward Snowden. Uh, and then in October, the, the occasion for that is that in October, we're publishing the third Little Brother book, Attack Surface. And then in between, on July the 14th, my first ever picture book, which is a, a book called uh, Posey the Monster Slayer for Little Kids, illustrated by Matt Rockefeller, is coming out. And it's a book about a little girl who uh, tears apart her toys and makes them into field expedient monster hunting weapons and, and refuses to go to bed and instead hunts monsters in her bedroom. It's a bedtime story for monster kids. So yeah, that's 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 uh, that's my plugs. It's a weird time to have books coming out because we don't know if we'll have bookstores, let alone book tours. So completely understand it. If I'm going to plug my books and you guys need uh, something great to do while you're social distancing and terrified of a plague, I've got a post plague thriller for you as well. MattWardWrites.com. Thanks for coming today, Corey. Thanks for doing this. It's been all fun, right. informative, and all over the place. Lovely to chat. Talk to you later. I will talk to you later. Stay safe. Stay healthy. And. Uh, yeah, keep putting out good stuff. You too. Mm -hmm. Cheers. Be the change you want to see in the world. That's something I strive towards and fail towards every single day. If you enjoyed this podcast, if you think the world could benefit from conversations like this, the greatest compliment you can give us is referring to the disruptors to a friend or talking about us on social media. Please take 30 seconds to do so. It would mean the world to us, and if we're lucky, help us build towards a better world. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for helping us spread the message, and have a great day. If you want more of The Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm slash iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.